0: Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Romans chapter 3, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some, uh, there should be some on the chairs, underneath the chairs in front of you, but we have been, if you're a visitor here, we've been going through the book of Romans, looking at some of the the attributes of God in this book, The that, that means the characteristics, the quality of, of who God is, and so I want to just re- review those, And I also want to say my life has been changed by studying God's attributes. There's no greater study for us, no greater question before us than what we think of when we think of God. And I pray this series will change your lives. But We've seen God's righteousness in chapter 1 and God's wrath and God's power. Moving into chapter 2, His kindness and then His faithfulness. This will be our third week in chapter 3, and then last week we saw His glory and His grace, what we just sang about, His glory and grace. Look with me at Romans 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I want to begin our time here telling you a story of grace. And I have permission of Sonia to share this story about Bob Flieger. This was just three months ago. Many of you know Bob's health has been failing for many years. He was 95, I think he was turning 96. There were many times I went to his house. He was not a church-going man but I would try to speak to him of God's grace, speak to him of salvation. There were many times where I, I couldn't tell if he could even understand what I was saying. Sometimes his eyes were glossed over, but on November 15th or 16th, I believe it was, when I was at his house that day, he was, he was very tuned in to what I was saying. His, his voice was already failing. He could barely communicate, but I was communicating to him about God's grace. and I was walking through the book of Romans, the the very truths that we 'll be looking at here today and explaining god 's grace and what it means to not trust our own life or being a good person or our works but trusting his grace alone and and this was the only time i 'd ever communicated with him where he was he was really resonating and, and, and reflecting back in his face, and, and I would ask him, "Do you understand that and he would nod, and, and I would be, I explained more and more of God's grace, what it means for him to be Lord and, and Savior and, and all of that, and and he, Sonia, I remember leaned over into his ear and said, Bob, do you want to trust Christ right now? And he said yes, or he nodded yes, and I, I said, if, if you, even if you can't speak out loud, he says, I want to walk you through what that means in your heart, if you if you want to pray this in your heart if this is really your, your faith. And so I walked through the things we'll be looking at here today, and, and I said, is, is that something you believe now? And, and he, he nodded, and I, and I asked him, Do you, and I said, okay, I need to make sure I've under explained this. And so I went through what it meant for him to be Lord, and, and made sure he understood, and he was nodding. And so I, 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 I prayed with him, and then I asked him if that's if that's your heart, can you say "Amen?" And he, he got out this amen and and it was it was an incredible moment, and as as I walked away from that scene, it it, it, it literally looked to me like there was a, a new peace on his countenance, a, a tear on his cheek, and a, a smile on his face and That was not long before he was called home in his life, and I was reminded of Someone at the end of their life in the Bible who all they could do, they were on a cross next to Jesus. All they could do was, was look to Jesus for mercy and their weakness. That man next to Jesus, he couldn't do any good works. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't, just like Bob, couldn't get out of his bed or, or, or do much else. But God is merciful to sinners who look to Jesus in that way when there's no ability when you understand there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and so we're going to have some baptisms today but baptism does not save anyone it's a picture of those who have been saved but no good works it's grace alone just like that man next to jesus on the cross jesus looked to him and said today you will be with me in paradise because he asked the lord to have mercy on him and remember him in his kingdom this passage, Romans 3, 23, is saying that's all of us spiritually. None of us are able to, to do anything or even take the first step towards God to save ourselves. Being a good person is not good enough. Rituals and religion cannot justify us. In other words, that we can't be declared righteous or made right with God by what we do. It's only, this passage says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It, it's, it's a gift and so whether you can walk or talk or not, we are all saved. The only way to be saved is by God's grace and for God's glory. In fact, I want to just take a moment to talk about what some of these statements on the wall behind me mean, if they're, if they're new to some of you. These are the sometimes called the, the sola statements, the five of them out of the Reformation or the Reformed faith. Scripture alone is what that first one means, which means it's our sole and ultimate authority. And then... We're saved by grace alone. It's it's a solo work of God. It's not a duet where we're combining. This is not a, a joint operation. This is a solo operation by God's grace alone. And then we're saved by grace through faith alone. That's what that means. It's solely by faith, not works. But that faith has to be in Christ alone, trusting Christ only in what he did for us. And then ultimately in the middle, we saw this last week, it's, for the glory of God alone. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for God's glory alone. And we say that based on Scripture alone. Today we're going to focus on this sola gratia, grace alone, what that means in salvation. So we're going to look at the definition of grace, the doctrines of grace, and then the duties of grace, all from the book of Romans. But, but sometimes we use these words a lot. Grace. Some of you have named your middle your your kids' middle name or their first name Grace. Many churches have the name Grace in them. But sometimes we can use these words so much that they, they lose some of their meaning or, or sometimes even we can explain them in ways that don't give justice to what that word means. There's a minister by the name of Kurt Daniel who who spoke of being in Texas, hearing a very well-known pastor speaking to about three thousand people, illustrating this story of grace, and his story was, there was a boy in an ice cream shop, and this is in the in the days where he, he in the old days he would go to ice cream shops, and he he had a quarter with him. He had walked to the ice cream shop, and he said, "I'd like to get an ice cream cone." And the person said, "Well, that's going to be a dollar." And he. He said, well, all I have is a quarter. So he put the quarter there, and his lips beginning to tremble as a cute little kid. And so a guy kind of looks across and has pity on him and walks over and says, hey, I'll pay the 75 cents. And so he gives the ice cream cone. He's happy. And the, and the pastor said, that's grace. And, and Kurt Daniel said he wanted to stand up in that place and say, no, that's, that's not. And he actually wrote this minister and says a better illustration of grace would be a young man who's done hate crimes against the ice cream shop owner and against his son personally. He's, he sprayed anti-Semitic graffiti. He, he threw a brick through the window. He tried to burn down the ice cream shop, and he's guilty. But the owner of the ice cream shop decides to not only pay the bail... For that criminal, to release him, to, to pay his entire fine, everything that was owed, all the damages that are done. But not only, he doesn't stop at that, he begins to lavish kindness upon him. And he says, you know what, you get free ice cream the rest of your life. But not only that, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into my family, and you're going to be a son along with my other son and joint Heirs of everything in my inheritance. That is grace right there. That's the picture of grace in the language of Scripture. In verse 24, when it talks about redemption, that's paying the penalty. Jesus paid it all. He didn't do 75%. He did 100%. And it wasn't just bail to set free a prisoner. It was paying the fine for all the crimes that had been committed against the God who owns us. And another aspect of redeeming or redemption in Bible times is is sometimes they would someone who was wealthy and had a wealth of riches might redeem someone out of slavery, buy them back out of slavery for the purpose of adopting them. If you've seen the movie Ben Hur, you've seen an example of someone who was a, a criminal and a slave who was then adopted by a wealthy Roman. But this is the language used of that time. The Roman Empire that's being used here and it's God the Father who is bringing us his, his own beloved son is actually the one who paid his blood and paid his life to make fellow sinners or sinners fellow sons fellow heirs with him who had no sin and so here's what Paul says in Ephesians 1 Verse 5, in love, this is God the Father predestined us to be adopted as his sons to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the beloved Son. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. These are his riches and he's lavishing them. And Ephesians 2 calls it the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And that's so none of us can boast. None of us can take any credit for any part of it. Even our faith in the language there is part of The gift of God that's not from ourselves or anything we could do or choose on our own. It's all of grace. So that we would praise God's glorious grace that he freely gives us in Christ. Grace means undeserved kindness. And it's a lavish, it's an incomparable riches In kindness, Annie Johnson Flint said it this way, out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. Maybe you've heard of grace defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. We need to remember that expense because it's free to us, but it was costly. It was the greatest cost to Christ. So we should cling to Christ and marvel at that cost. Because that's how we are declared righteous in verse 24. That's all the background of that language in Scripture when we it says, verse 24, look at it. We are justified by grace as a gift. Or the New King James says we're justified freely by His grace. And it's actually an adverb. And so justified freely, meaning we're we're freely declared right with God. Declared righteous and, and right with Him by His redeeming grace not by anything in us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, this is not a cheap grace. Jesus paid a great cost with his precious blood so that grace upon grace could flow down that we sang about. And it's all of grace, as a writer named Charles Spurgeon said, one of the best-selling books of ever, all of grace, if you want to read more about that, Charles Spurgeon. But this isn't like, again, this word can be used lightly. You've heard of Graceland in Memphis, it's a place where you can go, but you've got to pay to get in to Graceland. This is the real Graceland of heaven. Is a free gift. In fact, a trip to heaven is all expenses paid by God, by King Jesus. But I want you to turn to Romans 5 to see how Paul defines this. Because grace is also defined in contrast to Adam's original sin. Romans 5, verse 15 so we can see the free gift in contrast. The free gift is not like the trespass. And he's talking about the trespass of Adam's sin. And in verse 14, he's talking about Adam. So verse 15, the free gift is not like that trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, so Adam died and then people have been dying ever since, sin came into the world, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So this is free gift. In fact, he's going to say it two more times in the next verse. It's a free gift of grace, and it's abounding for many. And, and he's going to also say in the next chapter that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it includes all of that. But just think of that language of a gift. If, if it's Christmas time, or your birthday or any other time, someone gives you this gift, you, you open it and you're excited, kids, you can think about this. You, you see this gift, you open it up, and, and it's something that's it's amazing. It wasn't expected. You don't think you've been deserving this by the way you're acting, but this is an amazing gift. Or just think of someone does something incredibly nice for you, and you say, you know what? I'm not going to accept that until I work for you and pay you back and earn this. You don't get it. You don't get what the, the gift is. In fact, if you try to earn a gift you actually spurn the giver. If you try to earn a gift, you're actually spurning, you're insulting the giver. And that's what religion does apart from Christ. It tries to to work, to, to pay for what cannot be paid for when heaven is an unearned and free gift by the grace of Jesus. And so verse 15 ends with grace that's abounding and it's for the many. It's for the many who believe. You have to believe to receive this grace. Verse 17 explains it further. For if because of one man's trespass, that's again Adam, death reigned through that one man, but much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, much more will they reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So there's two men. The question is, who is your, who is your head? Are you just in Adam because you're, you're human, that one man? Or is, do you look to this other man, Christ Jesus, who came, fully God, fully man? Are you in Christ by faith? If you're in Christ, that, 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 that death, that all the, the punishment that you deserve for your sin has now been paid for by him, and there's life, and there's, he calls it a, a free gift of righteousness, his righteousness, his right life is, is actually given to us and it abounds through that one man. So Adam, to all humanity, all who are in him, there's death, not just death in this life, but eternal separation from God. But all who receive the abundance of grace through faith in Christ, who see him as their head, he's the one in charge of them now. And what he did in his righteous life and in his death, that's part of the free gift, that's part of the life That we receive. So think of a pure white robe. In fact, you're gonna see some white robes when we do the baptisms, and we're gonna sing this song, Draped in His Righteousness. I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. And so even as you as you see those robes being put on, they're they're covered with that whiteness that, that, that that symbolizes purity. And that's a symbol of what Christ has done for us. We take His robes over mine. And then verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, this is Christ now, His obedience, the many will be made righteous. In other words, the, 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 by the obedience of Jesus, the many, those are those who will trust in Him, they're, they're declared right. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, In other words, it increases our knowledge of sin, the law does. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more we saw our sin from God's law, there's still more than enough grace for that. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he paid the wages of sin, which is death, to give us the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So grace is a saving power, but it's also a, a reigning power in this language. Grace reigns, it's a sovereign, and it's a sustaining power for our lives. We sang in Amazing Grace, it's grace that's brought me safe thus far, you know, through all the dangers, toils, and snares, and it's grace that will, what? Lead me home. It's all of grace all the way. It's grace that, that helped us Realize we were lost and needed to be found. We didn't find God on our own. We were lost. He had to find us. That's what grace does. It's all of grace. It's amazing grace. John Bunyan called it abounding grace to a sinner. We sing there's grace greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. All that we do could never sin erase. God must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. That's how we look to Jesus, the rock of ages, the the source of all graces. And look at chapter 11 where Paul says it's freely bestowed on all who believe. We we can't give a gift to pay for free grace. Romans 11, verse 35 asks it this way, Who has given a gift to him, that's to God, that he might be repaid? We can't give God a gift so that he now owes us or will repay us. And verse 6 of Romans 11 Says this, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. So grace, by definition, is not about our works, what we do. It's about the works of Christ that he's done for us. It's not only unearned. We were unlovely. We were unworthy. So A.W. Pink's book, The Attributes of God, we actually have a few copies of these in the, in the back still. His book on the attributes has a chapter on God's grace, and he points out it's not just undeserved, it's actually for us who deserve the opposite. We were thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. He says grace is completely unmerited and unsought, and it is altogether unattracted by anything in or from us. It is unasked and undesired. And I think that language comes out of Romans 10, verse 20. When I want to just look back at Romans 10, verse 20, quoting God. Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. God speaking of his grace. Those who weren't even seeking, weren't even asking for him. He shows himself in his grace. And that's why that book says grace is unasked and unsought for. God has to seek the sinner, and that takes us to our second point there, the doctrines of grace, the definition of grace, but the doctrines of grace. Look at chapter 11, verse 5. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant, notice the language, chosen by grace. That's the grace, again, that's not on the basis of works or even our willpower. It's grace. It's based on God's will. It's sovereign. God says in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I choose to be gracious. And Paul quotes from that in Romans 9. But here in Romans 11, it's saying there's a remnant of saved Israel as the context. And the end of verse 5 is they're chosen by grace. In verse 7, what then? Israel Failed to obtain, this is unbelieving Israel, failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, that's another word for the chosen, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So so some obtained God's gift and calling to faith. They were chosen by grace, but the rest were hardened in sin. And this is the language he'll use in verse 28. Election, it's the noun form of the word chosen. Election is by grace. We're chosen by grace, and we're called by a grace that God will not revoke. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So this gift and calling that he's talking about is not taken away. It's permanent. When God calls us into his forever family, Sometimes as adoptive families, we use that language of a kid being brought into their forever family. When we're adopted into God's family, it's a forever family. And even that analogy of adoption, God chooses us, God loves us, and that doesn't make us robots. That's real love. My own son, who I have adopted, who I chose and loved and set my love upon, he truly Loves me in return, but sometimes when we think of our salvation, we think maybe you've even said these things, I've said these things in the past. Well, I, I thought I, I was the one who took the first step. I thought I was the one who who just came up with this, and I called on God. I chose God. It seems like there's something that was just from me. Well, look at verse thirty-six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. He doesn't say all things except what you did or or what you thought or what you chose are from Him. You get partial credit. No, all things are from Him. One hundred percent, anything good that comes out of us is by His grace and for His glory. And he changes us and changes our hearts. So we do truly love him and want to follow him because of what he's done. But this is choosing grace. It's redeeming grace. It's calling grace. And it's eternally secure grace. And so uh, I want to give you just an an acronym using G-R-A-C-E to help us see some of these things. How God chooses sovereignly, we could say, in grace. Radically depraved sinners in grace. He actually redeems them in grace. He calls them effectually in grace and he eternally keeps them in grace. But it starts with his choosing. The Lord said to his followers in John 15, You did not choose me, but I chose you. In, in other words, his choice, his love was first. It wasn't caused by theirs or ours. First John 4.19 says it this way, We love him because he first, what? Loved us. Oh, how I love Jesus because he, what? First loved me. And we can look at other passages, but just stay in Romans. Let's look at Romans 9, verse 15. Romans 9, 15. God says to Moses, I will have mercy, on whom I have mercy. One of the translations I looked at says, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God chooses. But there's this second doctrine of grace, I think, actually helps us and makes us understand the first one. when We understand that we, we needed to be rescued. We needed him to come for us. And sometimes we can even be offended by this language. Or I remember singing... Many years ago with my grandmother, the song Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, and she just did not like that wretch like me part. There's, there's parts of what, how Scripture and how songs speak of, of our need for grace that can be offensive. But when we understand that we actually were lost, we were blind, we, we needed His grace. And, but I don't want you to take the words of a song for it. Go back to chapter 3 where we started. We started. We could look at Romans 1.28 that uses the language of being debased or having a depraved mind. Our, our, our thinking is affected by this. Or Romans 2.5 talks about having a hard heart. We could look at all that, but I want to just point out the need for grace as it leads up to grace in Romans 3. Look at Romans 3.11. It's talking about unsaved, apart from Christ. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In other words, on our own, we're not understanding these things. We're not seeking for God. We need God to seek us. If this verse is true, we need him to choose us and to woo us to him. We need to have our hard hearts softened. We need to have our depraved minds that he talked about earlier. We need to have those opened to understand. And Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. That's the good news. He came for lost people. And so when we use this word like wretch or radically depraved, that doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be. And don't think of a radical terrorist. I was actually trying to think of a better word for it than that. But just our, our total sinfulness is, is the idea. It's, and, and some you used this word radical because the sense of the root of who we are on the inside. Another way to say it is we're totally infected with sin. It corrupts our understanding, it corrupts our will, it corrupts our heart before Christ. And there's a spiritual deadness inside of us that comes out in what we think or speak. And when we say deadness, we're, we're saying we're not responding or moving towards God. It's that type of deadness. But we're very active in that deadness around here, just not active towards God rightly. So verse 13 kind of talks about how this comes out. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. That's kind of graphic. An open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses. And so there's this bitterness or this badness that comes out from a hardness of heart. It's the corruptness or deadness like an open grave. It comes up the throat is the language. And then it's on the, on the tongue And then it moves like poison to the lips. And then it's coming out the mouth. I mean, this is is kind of graphic. But it's not just our talk. It's also our walk and our life. Verse 15 mentions the feet. And verse 17 talks about what we know. And verse 18 talks about our eyes, so our feet are from head to toe. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of grace in all of me. I'm in need of grace. I need to be justified by his grace, like verse 24. That's why I need verse 24, to be justified by his grace as a gift, because I can't just change myself just by trying to be a better person. So God chooses. And, and then the, the third one is, I was radically in my sin, but then he actually redeems by grace. Verse 24 says, Grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not just a potential and a universal thing. It's actual and there's particular believers who are redeemed. In Scripture, those who are unbelievers are the unredeemed. Those who can say, I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, can also say, His child and forever I am. Those go together. The moral atheist cannot say, I'm redeemed. The religionist cannot just say, I'm redeemed, because they go to worship services, whatever their religion is. Redemption, in verse 24, is given freely only through Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus. So Jesus didn't just die to try to save all. He actually redeemed particular people. And when you understand redemption is not just a payment, it's not just a, a payment, take it or leave it. It's, redemption is actually setting someone free from slavery. To be a, and it could be setting them free to be a son, like it is in Scripture so Romans 8 talks about how redemption is only for believers, and it says even the world is longing to be set free from this bondage and longing for the day when there will be the redemption, same word, of our bodies. So someday we're going we're gonna to actually be redeemed, set free from, from the limitations and bondage of these bodies. Some of you are looking forward to that when the weaknesses we have in this world, we groan. There's going to be a day when we're redeemed from these actual bodies, set free from these bodies. So to be redeemed is to be set free. To be set free in, in here from our, no, from our sin, to no longer be slaves to sin, like chapter 6 says. So not everyone is redeemed. You, you've got to receive grace by faith in Christ. And so look at verse 25 now. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's a big word that just means the propitiation, removing, satisfying God's wrath, and then removing it from the sinner. So it's actually taking God's wrath away. But those who don't trust in Christ, the scriptures say the wrath of God actually remains on them. Chapters one and two says, "God's wrath is being revealed on those who suppress God's truth. Those who are not repentant, His, his wrath is, is at work and it's being stored up for them. And so this takes us now from I mean, actually redeems, but how, does, how do we experience that? How do we come to faith? We're called effectually. This fourth one. look at Romans 4:17. as it is written. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom He, this is Abraham, believed. And this is the God he believed in, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is God. He, he calls into existence things that aren't there. He, he brings life from death. Only God can do that. Only the Lord can can call in a way that actually effects. That's what effectual means. It it effects what he calls for. The Lord can stand at the tomb of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth. And that call actually effects what he's calling for. Lazarus came out of the grave. And we understand from Scripture, we were dead in our sins. We needed a mighty work of God. We, We weren't just sick needing some Medicine presented to us and we, we choose which medicine we're going to take. No, we were, we were needing life. It, it, I, amazing grace saved a wretch like me. I was blind, but now I see. I didn't give myself sight to see, but God could call into existence that spiritual sight that I lacked so that I now can see Christ and, and I can believe in Him. But I, I can't even take credit for that. I give Him all the glory for the fact that I see and believe in Him to this day, Romans 6.13 says, Believers are and we're to think of ourselves as those who have been brought from death to life. I think the best verse that talks about this is Ephesians 2.5. When we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In other words, to be saved by grace means you were dead and he made you alive. He gave you life. He called you to life. And we respond because of his regenerating, life-giving grace. We seek to follow him because of his love. If you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. We sing, I was on a hell-bound race. I was indifferent to all of that, but you looked upon my helpless state. You led me to the cross. And and so what happens in salvation is that hard heart from Romans 2 becomes a new heart. It's a new heart that finds him beautiful. It finds the Lord irresistible. So Romans 6, 17 says, You who were once slaves to sin became obedient from the heart. You couldn't just set yourself free from your slayer, but you were redeemed and and now there's a heart that wants to obey. It's a new heart. Kevin DeYoung's book, Grace Defined and Defended, explains it this way. Think about peas, Yeah, you heard me, peas, those little green things. And he says, I promise I won't make you think about them for long. Most sane, high-functioning children do not like peas. The only way to get peas into some mouths of some squirmy children is to forcibly hold them still, maybe pry open that lower jaw and then ram those tiny spheres of squirtiness into the face and then say, you're going to eat this and you're going to, what, moms? You're gonna like it. That's not what we're talking about here. By irresistible grace. God doesn't forcibly force this upon us against our will or obliterate our will. He renews, He changes and transforms our will. And so if if you can even imagine this analogy, that the will's infused with a new property. Imagine that we get new taste buds and new senses that can actually now taste peas and we can taste and see that they're actually good now and they're tasty. They're like the sweetest thing we can think of. I know it's a miracle, but just, just go with me with this. God doesn't shove the vegetables of grace down our throats in that way. He changes us so that we now want to take in that sweetness and that goodness that he provides for us. So this is a persuading, heart-changing miracle. It changes our affections. He woos and he wins our hearts. You're going to hear one of the testimonies in a few minutes of how God won this person's heart. And the last one is the Lord. Is, is, he, he does this all the way. He's eternally keeping us by his grace. So look at Romans 8. This is a sweet truth. Verse 30, those, Romans 8, 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So all he calls and justifies make it to glory. It's all of grace. And the end of verse 32 says, he will graciously give us all things. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, The end of the chapter says, His grace is going to keep you to the end. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we'll study that more next time. And there's questions about that that you'll have that we'll see in a couple other messages. But I just want to say, even before we move on from here, if you've never understood that grace before, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus as your head, as your master, as your Lord, May this be the day that you call upon his grace, that you see he is gracious to you. You can't do anything. Maybe you've been trying to be a good person, trying to think, well, if I live a good life, you know, I haven't killed anyone. Uh, I'm, I'm not as bad as these people over here, but that's not the standard. The only hope is, Jesus said, no one gets to the Father but through me. The only way is through Christ. So if you've been trusting anything else, I want to plead with you and urge with you this day, even this very hour right now, to turn from whatever else you've been trusting in and living for and call upon him. And you might have some questions, how does all that work? I can tell you this, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. His grace is open wide to anyone who will come. He is freely extending his grace to you right now. There's no excuse. What would hold you back from coming to this Savior? His grace is enough. You'd be willing to repent, turn from your sins, trust in Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And I would love to talk with you more about that afterwards if you have questions. But there's some duties of grace. Grace is not something that should make us passive. We can't do anything to get to heaven, but there are things we are to do in light of heaven and its free gift. And so one of those things that Romans calls us to, using this language of grace, is to be humble. Be humbled by grace. Look at Romans twelve three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. God gives grace to the humble. And when you understand how much you needed grace, if you really believe all those verses about your need for grace, that should keep you humble. That should keep you in the place of grace. We're saved by grace through a faith that is not of ourselves. Even that's part of the gift of God. There's nothing we can boast about. And if some of these difficult doctrines are hard to understand and eternity past and all how that works out with how our wills are changed and, and all of that, just Join the club. And, but, but let it humble you. Let, let it humble you to realize God's a lot smarter than you are. God's a lot bigger than you are. And don't try to find some way to argue or explain away what Scripture says. Just say, Lord, I, all I know is I, I need you. I trust you. I, I don't know why I would be saved and not someone else, but I give you the glory for that. Help me to live for you. Don't try to find some way to think more highly of yourself than you ought to be, or think more highly of yourself in your conversion if you are converted. Thinking about what you did. Think about what he did for you. But also think about this. If if we stay humble, we remember God's grace, we should also say, as we see other sinners still in their sins, we should say, there but for the grace of God would go I. We're not better than anyone else. And apart from God's grace in our life, we could still go away and go astray. So be humbled by grace. And recognize you still need his grace all the time. And then if you're a Christian, if you know God's grace, exercise your gifts. Let me just read this. Romans 12, 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them. Let's exercise them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads, let it be with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. This is the heart that's been changed by grace, how we should live as we serve. And verse 10 kind of sums up all those love one another with brotherly affection. And verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So just take one or more of those on that list. If you've received grace, you're to be doing something from what I just read this week. And even this day, there's opportunities before you leave here to practice one of those things that I just read. Or to, as you go from here, seek to show hospitality. Or as, as you serve others, e- even if in the workplace you might be serving and working with unbelievers, you can still show this grace. The point of all this is grace to you is to flow through you. So Paul starts chapter 1 with grace to you. Here he's talking about grace through you. And, and praying, by the way, at the end of verse 12. Some of you may feel like I, you're at a stage of life where you can't do a lot like you used to before. Don't underestimate praying At the end of verse 12, we need to pray for one another. Let people know we're praying for them. And then thirdly and finally, and then we'll do our baptisms. This actually tells us what that's all about. Live your new life in view of God's mercies. We're to live as living sacrifices. I think I'll look at that passage in chapter 12 more another week. But chapter 6, I just want us to close with this. Because this is talking about those in Christ, how the big idea of chapter 6 is sin does remain, but it must no longer reign. Sin does remain for a Christian. It doesn't, we're not perfect now. It doesn't go away. But sin no longer is to reign like it did before in our life. Because we're not under the, the power of the law. We're not under that as a power. We're under grace now. There, there's actually power in grace to do what God's moral standard calls us to. And sin is no longer our slave master we're to die to that old life. That's the, what chapter 6 is all about. But I just want us to notice verse 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, if it's free, if it's all of grace, should we just keep sinning? No, Paul says, by no means. You see, if you really understand grace and if it's inside of you, it's, it's going to change you in the way you think. What shall we say then? By no means, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it?